Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6 and look at this everlasting covenant further. John chapter 6. Everywhere you turn in the pages of Scripture, there's some aspect of the everlasting covenant. I mean, when you look at the gospel accounts, it's the gospel of the Son of God. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the messenger of the covenant. He is the, the yea and the amen of the everlasting covenant. He is the blood of the New Testament. His shed blood is the blood of the New Testament. It's by Him fulfilling the law that the law is fulfilled in us. It's Him by dying as a substitute on the cross of Calvary that our sins were put on, imputed to Him and He paid for them. His righteousness by obeying the law was imputed to us. And so we get to read about His life. So when you read, Genesis, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what are you looking for? Are you looking for exciting miracles or are you looking for the character of the Son of God? Because what, what do you really want to gather from it? Because Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And that was even the Old Testament. But we want to look for the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first question was, What is the everlasting covenant? I answered it. It is God's holy design, assignment of parties, and actions and conditions and preparation, and a guarantee to save all the elect. There's the preparation of heaven that was in the everlasting covenant, because the Bible tells us that the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world in Matthew 25. Next question, who are the parties or persons to the everlasting covenant? Well, there was only God. The angels were created as part of the everlasting covenant. Third question, what do the divine persons in this covenant agree to do? Well, the Father chose the beneficiaries and agreed to accept the sacrifice of His Son on their behalf. It all took place in heaven. God had to purpose in His eternal decrees that if His Son Jesus came and took on human flesh and nature and died on the cross, that He would accept that sacrifice in lieu of the payment by those beneficiaries themselves, all agreed upon before the world began. And we're told a number of details about it. In John chapter 6, when it says in verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then in 38, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So Jesus had a will already given to him by the Father that he was supposed to die for us and that his death for us would save us and he'd raise us up again at the last day. So verse 39 says, I should lose nothing of those the Father gave me, but should raise it up again at the last day. He was assigned to do that. He was assigned to come. He was assigned to die. And he was assigned to raise us up again. And he was assigned to be our intercessor forever because God swore with an oath, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Anywhere you turn in the Bible, you get aspects of this everlasting covenant. That's right. There's so little known about Melchizedek until you get to Psalm 110, you know a little bit more. I mean, he is one obscure figure if all you've got is Genesis 14. What do you know about Melchizedek except that he was the king of Jerusalem a and, a, and priest of the Most High God. And he accepted tithes from Abraham, which said he was a pretty important man, and he blessed Abraham, which said he was a more important man than Abraham, because the greater blesses the lesser. But you wouldn't even know those things clearly unless you had read Hebrews chapter 7. Because right. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us those things about the relationship between Melchizedek and Abraham and Melchizedek and Levi, the son of Abraham, the son of that came through Abraham to be the father of the priests in the uh, tribe of Levi of Israel. 
And so here in John 6, these verses that we know so well and that our quizzers have learned recently, there are hints, implications, requirements of an everlasting covenant where God had a will and that will involved assigning certain people to Jesus Christ and assigning Jesus Christ to do certain things for those people and that Jesus would raise them up again at the last day. And it's Jesus said, I'm not going to lose a single one of them. The eternal covenant is that strong. The ones that God gave me, I will save and I will raise up. And that is what we believe. When we talk about salvation, we do not talk about us making some decision for our eternal destiny at some youth rally. When we talk about eternal life, we talk about God making a decision on our behalf and assigning us to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ to us to save us with an everlasting salvation by His legal payment on the cross. In the mind of God, it was already done. And there are certain things like adoption and like justification that in the mind of the judge, once it's determined to view certain criminals in, by, by the imputation or accounting of another, it, they're already justified. So there is a sense that we were eternally justified, eternally adopted in God's purpose and plan. And then in time it works its way out by Jesus Christ actually dying and then we being given the Spirit so that we cry out, Abba, Father. But that doesn't start our adoption except for that phase. And there's still a phase of adoption that we're waiting for in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23, and that's the redemption of our bodies. So you could say, we're not adopted, and try to be absolute in your terminology, we're not adopted yet. Because of Romans 8 says we're not adopted yet. But then I'm saying to you that because of Ephesians 1.4, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, we've always been adopted because of the everlasting covenant. Because when God purposes something so important as our adoption through Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, it's as good as done. These are called imminent acts of God's mind because they're actually done in His mind. Imminent. I-M-M-A, N-E-N-T, I-M-M-A, not I-M-M-I. I-M-M-I means it's about to take place. I-M-M-A, it's in the mind of God. And we stand with high Calvinists and other hyper-Calvinists, as enemies would call them, of the past that believed in things like eternal generation and eternal adoption and the imminent acts of God's mind. And they have written down some of those things before us. There's a whole long list that believed in eternal justification. And see, here's where the covenants be, take on an important role. We have, a, we have a German monk named Martin Luther who hadn't read much of the Bible, but he happens upon Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 where it says the just shall live by faith. It doesn't say the just shall be justified by faith. It says the just shall live by faith. And he gets all excited and so we have sola fide to this day, faith only, justification by faith. That's why he couldn't handle the book of James. But when we look at the Bible, we know that Abraham, who's the great example of faith for the whole New Testament, was justified in the sight of God and blessed by God as being a covenant seed long before he looked outside and believed that one day his seed would be as numerous as the stars of heaven and God Counted it to him for righteousness. Because we've been through the timeline of Abraham's life. 
But we know from the chart that I showed you, and we know from the everlasting covenant, that Abraham was in the book of life before the foundation of the world. There is so much confusion by messing up, by messing up covenants. Look at uh, Romans chap- uh, Revelation chapter 13 with me. Revelation chapter 13. Here's an example of being confused about timing. And we don't want to be confused about timing. When Abraham came outside and God said, count the stars, look at the stars, so shall thy seed be. And Abraham believed him and it was counted to him for righteousness. And the Apostle Paul uses that event in the life of Abraham to condemn Jewish legalists in the New Testament by pointing out that Abraham didn't have the law, Abraham wasn't even circumcised, but Abraham was declared to be righteous because that faith that he had was evidence of his justification and righteousness in the purpose of God. Jesus hadn't even died yet. It was counted to him for righteousness as evidence because of that faith he had. And we, we want these things so down so solidly and so pat in our minds that we're never confused. Here's an example. For those of you that have done any theological reading or soteriological reading about the death of Jesus Christ, you have read before that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I've, I've taught you this before. I hope that many things that I'm, I hope that almost everything I'm teaching you has been taught before because then I've done my job. But if I'm presenting these covenants in a new way that's making you appreciate the Bible in a different way and appreciate your salvation in a different way and where the patriarchs fit in and how the covenants relate to each other, then terrific. We've accomplished the goal that the Lord's given me. But most of the details you should have already heard before. You've heard this one before, but I want you to think about it. Everywhere I go, I have to read this. If I go outside the Bible, I have to read this. And going back to a book on covenants that I sold many years ago because it was of so little value, though it's one of the best books ever written on covenants, it starts out with this verse. That Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Is he? They love that, they love that sound bite. Like they're really saying something special about Jesus. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Here's where they get it. Revelation 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there, there's the, multi, there's the little list of prepositional phrases that say of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, pastor, why are you chasing something like that since you're wrong? It says the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. No, it doesn't. It says their names were not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The prepositional phrase from the foundation of the world is not modifying the Lamb being slain. It's modifying the names written. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? By flipping over to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8. And I'm going over this again because I want our children and youth to understand it. He was not the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was slain 4,000 years after the foundation of the world when he was slain 2,000 years ago because the world is 6,000 years old. Revelation 17 and verse 8, The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. See, that verse helps us understand that verse 13, Revelation 13, 8, 
from the foundation of the world is a preposition modifying the verb written. They were not written from the foundation of the world. Jesus wasn't slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus was foreordained from the foundation of the world because it says so in 1 Peter 1.20, but he wasn't slain until 4,000 years into world history, 4,000 years after the foundation of the world. I went through all that because I want you to think critically about the covenants and not make mistakes, and others will throw them right in your face. And I'm telling you, the Divine Covenants, written by Arthur Pink in 1934, one of the best books written on the covenants, the first verse i got to deal with is putting, me, putting it right in my face about the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and he puts in parentheses, in the purpose of God. Well, no, the purpose of God is not in Revelation 13, 8, except in the names written of the beneficiaries that were written there before the, from the foundation of the world that the Lamb came and died for 4,000 years after the foundation of the world. I'm content now. I just needed to get that over with. Because I want you to think critically about everything that's thrown in your face, even by good men. Just like you ought to think critically about question number eight and its answer on the chart that was sent you. I was tricked by my own question. And I love confessing it. I want to say it again. Brother Jim Cutler found it. Brother Jim Cutler confronted me. Brother Jim Cutler said, isn't it Shem? Shem had seven sons that he had to bury, not the six of Eber. Okay. I'm not content yet on that one. I'll say it. I'll put it in the Tuesday update. All I want is truth. And all I want you to want is truth. And so you've got to think critically about everything you find, including the pastor's answer key. But especially if you ever hear, Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. No, he wasn't. Jesus Christ was slain 4,000 years after the foundation of the world. By comparing Scripture, we're able to see that the prepositional phrase from the foundation of the world is modifying the verb written when those names are written. And see, that's the everlasting covenant. Is the everlasting covenant in Revelation 13, 8? It's not there by the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's there by their names were written from the foundation of the world. That's the everlasting covenant. It's called everlasting because it's before time. It's in eternity. It's before this world's foundation. It's before the world began. It's from the beginning, meaning in the beginning there wasn't anything. But in the beginning, God had already written us in the Lamb's book of life, in the book of life of the Lamb slain. Because when the Lamb appeared in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, what did he look like? Slain. Because it's the Lamb slain that gives us the benefits of the everlasting covenant. The son died the needed substitutionary death for those that the father had given him, and the spirit applies those things to the elect so that we have summary verses in the Bible that pull them all together. Like Romans 8, 28 through 33, where we're able to read, for whom he did foreknow, he predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. There's tying together different operations of grace through God the Father, God the Son, who became incarnate in Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit of God. We have 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we've got the three parties in one verse, 1 Peter 1, 2. Look at that particular verse. We used 1 Peter 1, 20 to start off with this morning, but let's look at 1, 2 just to see it and understand that you're looking at the everlasting covenant and assignments given. Because this didn't... 
This didn't originate in time. This originated in eternity when the assignments were given in the eternal counsel of God. 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. When were we assigned to the Lord Jesus Christ for His obedience and His sprinkling to be applied to us? Before the world began. As according as He hath chosen us in Him, before the foundation of the world. Before the world began. And so when you read a verse like this and it doesn't say that these three things occurred before the world began, you know they occurred before the world began because of other places in the Bible. Now the actual sprinkling of the blood, the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't occur until He was here 2,000 years ago. But He was assigned to come for us before that. That covenant was all the way... Listen, we can't get past Genesis chapter 3 when God says to the devil... The seed of that woman is going to bruise your head because the seed of the woman was already determined in the determinate counsel of God and would come and obey and would come and sprinkle his blood to save us from the effect of what the devil was able to do with our first two parents. There are so many verses that we could look at. Look at Luke chapter 10. I mentioned this in a prayer earlier today. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, it's about the apostles coming back to the Lord Jesus Christ after the first time they were sent out two by two and they were able to perform mighty miracles. There were actually 70 of them sent out. And it tells us in Luke 10, 17, the 70 returned again with joy. Luke 10, 17, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That sounds like something accomplished in Jesus Christ that we read from the lips of Zacharias, who said we're being delivered from all our enemies. And he said it more than once, didn't he? And he said it more than twice, didn't he? In just a few verses, all of our enemies. But the Lord Jesus says in verse 20, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So my question to you is, when were the names written in heaven? Because from this verse, you don't have that answered. But do you have that answered in other places? You absolutely do. Absolutely do in other places. So that's the way we're supposed to study the Bible, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You're supposed to be thankful that your names are written in heaven. Because it was by the grace of God they were written there. You know, if we were raised with that song, there's a new name written down in glory, then we believe that the name was written there because of something we did. And it happened, it turned, it turned upon that event in our lives, which is why I was saying the Arminian looks at the decision he made for himself that gets him in the book of life and saved into heaven and puts into act, action or force whatever covenants he may actually believe in. Most of them never talk about the covenants, so we don't even know if they believe in a covenant but they don't believe in an everlasting covenant like we do because the everlasting covenant that we believe in involves God's electing grace and predestinating purpose according to His eternal purpose that He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, which is the whole reason He made the whole thing. They look at Him making the whole thing and all of a sudden, oh no, Adam has sinned and I've got a mess on my hands. I'm going to send Jesus and whoever will invite Jesus into their heart can rescue them from the mess. But I want to ask this about their God. Their God, they say, is omniscient. Then why did that God go ahead and create those that He knew would not believe on His Son? That is the cruelest being that has ever been 
foisted on man. An omniscient God, knowing that somebody he's going to create will not believe on his son, and he will send them to hell, though he loves them dearly. He loves them so much he can't stand it, as the way they preach it through the, from the Bible. They want to pick on our covenant God? Here's what they want to say. Oh, so you believe in double predestination? That's what they're going to say to you. Ever heard that before? So you believe... They don't know anything about predestination, but they're going to throw that at you. What that means is that God not only predestinated some to life, but that God also presented some to damn, predestinated some to damnation. Yes, he did both. Obviously, he did both. But they have a God that goes ahead and creates and tells somebody, I love you. I love you so much I gave my son for you. Bye-bye. I'm going to send you to hell. They don't have a plan for it. When we look into the Bible, there is a covenant plan for everything, and it's all for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. And everyone that goes to hell, whether they're an angel or a man, goes to hell for their sins in the purpose of God to show his wrath and make his power known to all rational creatures in the universe. It's all by design. It's all by plan. The end and the intent is all good. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, and it reminds you of a verse there. This... They want to rail on, they want to call us hyper-Calvinists. They want to call us high-Calvinists. They want to call us Calvinists. They want to rail on us for double predestination. They can't stand the doctrine of reprobation. They don't even know what it is. Most of them couldn't even spell it. Reprobation simply means the opposite of election. If God elects somebody, that means he chose them. If God reprobates someone, that means he rejects them and didn't choose them. It's that simple. For any election, there's got to be some that were passed over. Did you, did you vote for Biden and Trump? Do you know why a lot of people voted for Trump? To get rid of Biden. Do you know why a lot of people voted for Biden? To get rid of Trump. Do you know? It's all so simple. There's got to be, when you vote for someone, you're rejecting someone else. When you elect one man to be president, you have rejected someone else. So one man's elected and the other is reprobated. You're just not used to that word because you haven't used it very many times this past week in a sentence, have you? But that, it's the Bible word. It's the Bible word. Our God has a plan. When you look at that top page of the master print, the master blueprint, it is absolutely beautiful. It is perfect in every single way. You just sit back, and the whole picture just comes in at once. I'm, look, I'm talking about a house, but I'm talking about the everlasting covenant. The whole picture comes in beautiful, perfect. That is a mansion. You just say, that is unspeakably beautiful. And that's, the, that's what it's true about the everlasting covenant, because it's all by plan for God's glory. Now, I've said... This is the third or the fourth time I've said this. All parts of it. Maybe the fifth. Point it out to me. What if God, willing to show his wrath and his power, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy? which he had a four prepared into glory. You can't get away from those. Do we believe in double predestination? Absolutely, certainly, why not? Is that just some little slur that you've heard somewhere that you're throwing at us? 
why don't you explain predestination to me and how you don't believe in predestination, a double predestination. Put them on the defense instead of you being on it. God had vessels of honor. God had vessels of dishonor. God had vessels of mercy. God had vessels of wrath. But he also wanted to do it for wisdom to show to higher, a higher order of rational creatures than you and me. So Ephesians 3.10, verse 11 tells us that he's talking about the eternal purpose which God purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. But notice in verse 10 we have the intent. We have the reason for the beautiful top everlasting covenant. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, by my treatment of the church, the manifold wisdom of God. This, is, this verse is a perfect cross-reference to 1 Peter 1.12, which things that angels desire to look into. Because these angels here are angels, principalities and powers in heavenly places. So when Paul's writing this, Jesus and Michael the archangel have already thrown the fallen angels out of heaven. Those are only the elect and holy angels, and God is doing this to impress them with his manifold wisdom of saving men. And not just saving that one line that came through Abraham and was only known as Hebrews and Israelites and then Jews, but Gentiles as well, because that's the context right here of Ephesians 2 and 3. It's all by plan. The whole thing is for the glory of God. They can call it whatever they want to. We have something that gives God glory. Their doctrine makes God an absolute failure in the cruelest being that has ever been imagined. To tell somebody that he loves them when he sends them to hell. And he created them in order to tell them that he loved them so that he could send them to hell. That's the Arminian God. Not when I look at this house. I just see beauty all the way through it. We did everything necessary through our head, Adam. Well, what, it's not fair. It's not fair that Adam made a choice and it made us all sinners. I just get tired of you saying that about Adam, really. So, the way that you would like it to have played out is that instead of you having a man at the fullest degree of his maturity and with the highest degree of his intellect that he ever had, in a perfect world, in a perfect environment, with a perfect wife, with only one commandment to keep, walking in fellowship with God every day, that man that could name every creature that God had created, that man, he's not good enough for you. You wanted to be in control of your eternal destiny yourself before God. So did you come into this world kind of messing on yourself and unable to figure out the very simplest of things? Did, is that true about you? Did it take you a couple of weeks to learn how to use a tricycle? Did it take a couple of months for you to learn how to use a bicycle? Did you, get, did you ever lie to your parents when you were five years of age and under? Did you lie more between the ages of six and ten? Now you want that man in charge of your eternal destiny instead of Adam? And I could, I could go on and on with the two comparisons. If the entire human race was back in the Garden of Eden and we had a conference to pick the smartest man among us, to stand in the Garden of Eden and represent us before God, do you know who we would have chosen? Adam. Do you know by what proportion of the vote? Unanimous. There was no one like him. So, I think we've answered the question when. 
Do you know how many verses we could look at? He promised eternal life before the world began. Who from the beginning hath chosen us to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. What is the end purpose? The glory of God. Same for everything that he ever does. The everlasting covenant is for the glory of God. What conditions or terms must the parties or persons perform to rightly comply with the covenant? God assigned his son to die and he agreed to do it. I come to do thy will, O God. Is that in Hebrews chapter 10? It certainly is. Jesus came to do the will of his Father in heaven. Isn't that what it said in John 6, 38? I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me. What is that Father's will? I want to know about it. That all which he hath given me, I should give eternal life to all which he hath given me. That is electing grace unto eternal life. The reason, any frustration that you feel is because I'm looking at uh, 22 pages and we're just getting started on this subject of God's covenants. Because it is the, it's, a, it's the Bible and I've got to keep from preaching the whole Bible. Who are the beneficiaries? Those chosen in Jesus Christ and assigned to Him by God the Father. Look at John chapter 10. I love the ones from John because of our quizzers working through the Gospel of John and parents that are engaged in quiz practicing a little bit with their children have been through these chapters and verses as well. John chapter 10, verse 28. John 10, 28. Who has John 10 in here? I won't ask you to stand and quote it. John 10, 28. And I give unto them eternal life. That's a wonderful statement. Jesus speaking. It's in the red writing. By the way, my big blueprint is red writing. I haven't had red writing for 40 years. I'm looking forward to it. Verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Does that sound pretty confident to you? Does that sound pretty committed to you? Does that sound pretty sure to you? That's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ about the ones that he's going to give eternal life to. Now who are they? How did he get them? My Father, in verse 29, which gave them me. That's how he got them. So we read, we read about the everlasting covenant everywhere. So when I ask the question, what must the beneficiaries do to put this covenant into force? God the Father has to give to the Son, and the Son has to give them eternal life. And he doesn't do this for all men, because we have verse 26 that says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Meaning, that's not, this is not the only time I've told you that you are not my sheep. Because we're in John 10, in John 8, he told them that they were of their father, the devil. This is all by covenant purpose, covenant plan, not my will, his will. He sent me, he gave them to me. I give them unto them eternal life by dying in their place. I'm going to raise them up again at the last day. I will not lose a single one of them. All by covenant plan. When this God sets his love on a man, that man can never be separated from the love of God. They don't have a clue about Romans 8, 38, and 39, though they memorized it and they forced us to memorize it when we were children, didn't they? Romans 8, 38, and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death, life, angels, principalities, height, depths, any other creature can separate us from the love of God, yet 95% of all those that God ever loved will be separated from the love of God. Not by covenant salvation. Everyone that God ever loved will be saved with an everlasting salvation because they've been loved with an everlasting love. Amen. All through the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He did not... He did not create anyone to tell them that he loved them and then damn them in hell. He created a covenant people to tell them that he had loved them with an everlasting love and they would live eternity with him, live for eternity with him. It's just absolutely beautiful, flawless. It's perfect. It's, it's beyond human description. It's unsearchable. It's unspeakable. Unsearchable riches of Christ. Unspeakable gift of eternal life. The number is absolutely determined and cannot be changed by anyone. Look at 26. Ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Can a sheep jump from verse 26 into verse 28? I mean, can a goat that's not a sheep jump from verse 26 into verse 28? No, can't be done. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, we have this wonderful promise that the Lord knoweth them that are his. And it's important for the Lord to know them that are his. Because in 2 Timothy 2, 18, we have some false teachers named Hymenaeus and Philetus who concerning the truth of erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Are you glad that the everlasting covenant is not dependent on your faith being absolutely perfect about every detail of the gospel? Because we're all capable of being overthrown, our faith being overthrown and being in error on some point. But it doesn't depend on that. Here's what it depends on. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. When was that foundation set? In eternity past, before there was a foundation for this world. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. In the great day of judgment, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you, but the Lord knows them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If we're going to call on Jesus Christ and God is our Father, then we ought to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear and depart from iniquity. But the rule is, the Lord knows them that are His. And so if we were led astray, or let's get, let's get very personal, I lead you astray. And so our faith is overthrown. Is the covenant going to break? Not a chance. Because the covenant is in the Godhead through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he happens to know a little truth. I think he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I think his name is faithful and true. I think Pilate's the one that said, what is truth? When Jesus said, everyone that knoweth the truth, believe, cometh to me, believeth on me. What do the beneficiaries have to do to put this covenant into force? They don't have to do anything because this covenant is enforced by seven categories of proof of unconditional salvation, which you've all been taught. It's all The whole Bible just comes together for this everlasting covenant. As we're flipping up a few of the pages, we get down to one called Seven Proofs of Unconditional Eternal Life. And we have seven columns. Seven categories of proof of unconditional eternal life. Grace is demerited favor, unconditional pardon. Our best only merits damnation, but we are made covenant children, covenant men, covenant women in the everlasting covenant of God made before the foundation of the world. What benefits were to be assigned or transferred to the beneficiaries? Eternal life, a seed of a woman that's going to come by a virgin birth, beautiful. God agreed to justify, adopt, and reconcile based on Jesus Christ. But God was in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18 But God was in Christ, 
All things are of God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. It's God agreeing that Jesus Christ dying is sufficient to undo the first Adam, sufficient to undo their own sins, sufficient to give the Holy Spirit the power and the basis for giving them a new nature. I will save them completely and reconcile them to myself. There'll be no more enmity or adversarial relationship between us at all. Part of the everlasting covenant, part of the benefits promised to us. Jesus would raise them from the dead. Gentiles would be gathered into that body. In John chapter 10 and verse 16, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Are you glad that verse is in there? Before we get to verses 26, 7, 28, and 29, how about verse 6, that the Gentiles are going to be brought into the one fold by the Lord Jesus Christ, all part of the everlasting covenant. Come back to Genesis chapter 9. Let me, I want you, do you know that this is everywhere? Genesis chapter 9. Had Noah ever met a Gentile? Honestly, I just want you to think. I don't, how could he have met a Gentile? He's still a number of generations removed from even Eber, the father of the Hebrews. The last words to uh, Noah. Verse 24. What a sordid event. Obviously, Noah wasn't in the covenant, was he? Was Noah in the covenant of grace? The ever- of course he was. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. Notice the, notice the tremendous blessing. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Because Shem had Jehovah as his God, and God had Shem as his covenant son. So there's a lot of blessing there in verse 26. But notice verse 27. God shall enlarge Japheth. Which son is going to have the most? Japheth. And he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. The Gentiles will be brought into the tent of Shem. And so we'll be brought into the, to the covenant people along with Shem and his descendants. It's, these are the last words. And, look, and Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so he gets plugged in on our chart. But before just plugging him in on our chart and picking what color we're going to give him, let's realize he's a covenant man, and there's a covenant line coming through him. And that covenant line goes through Shem, but Japheth is going to explode in size and come and dwell in the tents of Shem. And Paul said these things were hid from men for ages as they've now been revealed unto his apostles and prophets. In Ephesians chapter 3, the everlasting kingdom was prepared from the foundation of the world. Heaven's been prepared. Jesus had to go and prepare some things for us in a different sense than heaven needing to be created. God had already created and formed it just like he had the lake of fire because both in Matthew chapter 25 were already prepared ahead of time. A new heaven and a new earth is going to replace this corrupt one, part of the everlasting covenant. We're going to get rid of this sinful earth. We read, we read a, a, a little sign of it 
in the name Noah and in God taking some of the curse off the ground after the flood. We saw an improvement. Every, every little event like that, on what basis was that done? On what basis did things get better after the flood? The th- things got bad because of Adam. And for those of you that were interested in that discussion, there's several sections in the outline that you could ask me for and I'd give them to you in advance before I, before I can publish the whole thing. There was a curse on the ground because of Adam. There was an incremental curse on the ground because of Cain. And it's often overlooked. Cain's ground was cursed. And God said to Cain, the earth is not going to bring forth in its strength like, like it used to. What? Strength being applied to Adam and the curse of the ground in Adam? But it's, that's in Genesis 3 that you're used to, verses 17 through 19. But in Genesis chapter 4, because Cain killed Abel, God said, I'm going to curse the ground incrementally for you. You're going to be a vagabond because you're not going to be able to produce a living out of the ground at all. It will not give it strength. So the Lord knows gradations of a curse on the ground. And a gradation was lifted by the violent men before the flood when the flood was finished. God saw that their, their, the, the thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. I'm not going to continue to pound them. I'm going to show them my benevolence by sending sunshine and rain. I said these things last week. When you see a verse like that, rest and peace through the name of Noah from Lamech, and then the curse on the ground, I will do that no more. There was an incremental degree of that curse taken off, which is why we have free bread. All that's last Sunday. But when you see that, you should be thinking, what is making that possible? Why is God doing that? What should that hint at? That the ground is not going to, he's going to make it better by lifting some of his anger and curse from it. Ground, dirt, matter. Because I just told you that one of the benefits to be assigned is a new heaven and a new earth. And so there it is in germ form when he takes off his curse from the ground and the ground just brings forth and Isaac sowed in that year and reaped a hundredfold. That's a 10,000% return. Because it's hint, always hinting, always hinting, always hinting. See the woman, always hinting. Coats of skins, always hinting. Abel, with a blood sacrifice. When and, when and how did God reveal these secret things to man? To no one to respond to them, since no one was there to observe them. When God spoke, and then when God wrote. And we have the benefit of both. We have written down what he spoke, and we have written down what he wrote. So we have both. It's for this very reason the covenants and the scriptures about them take on such great value, because God's letting us into his eternal counsel of what he did way back there in eternity, and what the end result's going to be way over to the other side in eternity. And everything that happens in between and how the covenants play together and the different men and the different administrations and the different ways of worship all work together. We believe the obvious progression of Revelation of the Bible telling us more and more, think, in the Garden of Eden, we had that obscure verse, the seed of the woman, that it was given to us as a male, wasn't it? He, thou shalt bruise his heel. He shall bruise. We'll jump at anything, won't we? I will. I'll jump at anything that tells me about the everlasting covenant and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's plenty for me. See, it's not enough for the Roman Catholic Church. 
Do you know who they have in Genesis 3.15? Have you ever been to Bob Jones Art Gallery? If you've ever been to Bob Jones Art Gallery, you know that there's only one, one solution to that verse that they understand, and that's Mary standing on the head of the serpent. Over and over, Mary standing on the serpent. But we know that it's the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's Genesis 3. Then it's the seed of Abraham in Genesis 15. And then it's the covenant made with Moses of a prophet that's going to come. Then it's the New Testament with a time of reformation telling us that those things imposed on them in times past are no longer any good. Just advance, advance, advance. And we get to live on this side of 66 books. And we get to open up the whole blueprint. And we get to see how it all fits together. We, we have psalms that we call messianic psalms. I wonder how many of the Jews called the psalms messianic psalms in David's life. Oh, David just popped one off that's messianic. See, we're able... We, we are so blessed. We, we see the covenants being layered on top of each other and coming to the New Testament covenant, and it tells us, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, because we have the last form of worship there is. He's given us all that we need to know. What else do you need to know when you get to heaven? If your great-grand... I don't even want to say it out loud. You know, we know who our Redeemer is. Do you know his mother? Do you know his brothers? Do you know his sisters? Do you know which brother became a lead apostle in the church at Jerusalem? What? Do you know that he, re, that he justified us by his blood? Do you know all these things? We know, we know so much. You say, well, I want to know more. Well, you're going to be cured of ever having contrary thoughts to the gospel of Jesus Christ as soon as you're in the presence of God because your mind will no longer be fighting the truth. You'll be all truth. But we already know so much. How much more do you need to know? Well, I want to know how he made the son. Why do you want to know something like that? I'm, I'm referring to S-U-N. He may not even tell you how he made the son S-O-N. He told me enough. Because Mary asked, how are you going to do it? To Gabriel. Remember? The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And the holy thing that will be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. How certain ensures the everlasting covenant? I don't want to get to that point yet. Do you know that you can know more about the covenant of God? Psalm 25, I gave you to read last weekend. Psalm 25 says that the Lord can show, teach, guide, and lead you into more truth. And he can show you his covenant. In Ephesians, there's six chapters. In each chapter, there are two references to the ministries of the Holy Spirit unrelated to eternal life. Twelve. Twelve ministries. One of them is to be filled with all the fullness of God by knowing about the dimensions of the love of Christ for you. These things are offered to you in the Bible. How much do you want to know? Paul was intent about the Ephesians. As soon as Paul got done with saying, elect, predestinated, the good, the good pleasure of his will, eternal inheritance, as soon as he got done with that, boom. And this I pray that ye might know K-N-O-W, know, know this, know that, know this, know that. For you to appreciate the everlasting covenant and all the blessings that comes with it. 
It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's something that we want to pray for in this church. It's something that we want to seek for every day. It's something you want to pray for at home. It's the way that you want to open the Bible. When you say, Lord, open mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, I hope that the main thing will be the everlasting covenant and your purpose and love in Christ Jesus my Lord. It's the greatest message of the Bible. It's the message of the Bible from beginning to end. How certain and sure is it? God that cannot lie promised it before the world began. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Romans chapter 11. He swore with an oath. If you can change the covenant of the day and night, you know, why, do, why do I keep writing you about sunshine? Why did I write you yesterday and said it's such a sunny day and it proves the Davidic covenant? Why did I write you that? Because it's biblical. When that sun comes up every day, that is the faithfulness of God, and it's the minor faithfulness of God. Because the great faithfulness of God is his faithfulness that David would have a son to sit on his throne forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, and with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. And that's why I write you goofball things. Go ahead and call them goofball. I know what God thinks of them because they're in holy writ. I write you about the sun to think about when that sun is shining on your face and it was dark just a couple hours earlier or you got up when it was dark and you got to see that light drive the darkness away. But that faithfulness of that happening every single day is the faithfulness that not a single person will be lost from the everlasting covenant. And the Lord wants to reason that way throughout the pages of Scripture. If you can break this, then maybe you can break this. But since you can't break that, this is absolutely sure and final. And that's your salvation. Should I try to find the everlasting covenant even back there with all those patriarchs that you sent us with colored names yesterday? Yes. Death by bloodshed for sacrificial purposes became significant in all worship as a picture of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. When you see the words, and Abraham built an altar, what do you think about I wonder what it looked like. I wonder if the stones were big or medium. What do you think about? I'm trying to change your way of thinking right now. I'm working at it very hard. What's he going to do on that altar? Is there going to be blood dripping from that altar? That everlasting covenant. Popping up everywhere in the pages of Scripture. Over and over again. Childbirth. Childbirth took on a significant role for a womb only would bring the Savior of men, no man, the seed of the woman. Childbirth. Do you think that there was ever any Jewish lass and her parents that wondered if she was the one of Isaiah 7:14? The Lord himself shall give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Childbirth. And I mentioned something even basic to childbirth, and I'll not mention again for those of you that get uncomfortable with reality, but I mentioned about women. You get to think about it all the time, childbirth. Notwithstanding, 
after all the problems that God listed through Paul for women in 1 Timothy 2, 11, 12, 13, 14, all the problems. Adam wasn't deceived. The woman was deceived in the transgression. What a ridiculous idea of believing the devil like the woman. For, this is Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 11, 12, 13, 14, notwithstanding. She shall be saved in childbearing. What childbearing is going to save a woman? One woman's childbearing is going to save women. And it's the child of Mary. It's the holy child, Jesus. Powerful. Powerful, women. Girls, you're saved by the everlasting covenant right along with us. You know there's no difference in the everlasting covenant between men and women. We just have that difference for a few years here in this world. It's going to all be over in heaven. There's no male or female up there. It's just relationships that we have now. The promised seed of the woman declared war and victory by an incarnate virgin-born son who would be bruised at the cross but rise to destroy the devil holding the power of death. Fig leaves weren't enough. God killed animals for their coats for skins, and this emblematic death for sufficient covering to please God had the gospel in germ form of the everlasting covenant. The tree of life and cherubim signified the promise of eternal life, though off limits for mere human effort, until that man would come by the woman to open up the way to the tree of life. Righteous Abel offered a bloody sacrifice of death to God, earning hatred of Cain of the serpent seed, which testifying sacrifice was duly noted in the New Testament, which speaketh better things than that of Abel. But Abel's sacrifice was a fabulous sacrifice. Seth was appointed by God to replace righteous Abel, preserving a covenant people. Enos, son of appointed Seth, and a covenant and covenant men, promoted worship. And how does the Bible say it? Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What do you do with that verse? That is a fabulous verse. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Don't you want to call upon the name of the Lord and show yourself being part of the covenant line? This is the history of the world. It's all serving the everlasting covenant. Everything you read in the Bible. Don't read it too fast. Maybe I need a new program, half a chapter a day. So she'll slow down. So that you get you see all these. They're everywhere. Enoch walked with God, proving God and man could be reconciled, and learned gospel secrets of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he went to heaven without dying. Did Enoch know secrets of the second coming of Jesus Christ? Where does it tell us that? Jude. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, since you're a New Testament Christian. When you read the Old Testament about Enoch, do you just read, and he was not, for God took him? I wonder if you could see him go. I don't care if you could see him or not see him. Do you know that there was a, a relationship between God and him that prefigured the relationship we're going to have because of Jesus Christ? But he was already having it in anticipation of Jesus Christ. Everywhere. Everywhere. Sons of God in Noah's time, sons of God by covenant, chose affinity with worldly women, greatly offending God because the covenant of grace had declared perpetual enmity against the women of this world. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ. Does it say that in the Bible? Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Are you able to see his day in Abraham's life? 
Melchizedek, so obscure, was greater than Abraham, the father of the Jews and the friend of God. He was, Melchizedek was greater until David's prophecy in Hebrews 7. The patriarchs of Abraham and his sons believed the covenant. They knew land promises were heaven, making them wiser than all the dispensationalists today. Earthly priests by Levi were examples and shadows of the priest Jesus. When you see that God has a covenant, that he is going to send, the, that he's going to send David or the son of David, he means the same person by both titles, David or son of David, is Jesus of Nazareth. When he says that he's going to send David or the son of David in a verse, and it says, and there will be many Levites, Levites, priests, Levites, who is he speaking about? Us, because we're kings and priests forever through Jesus Christ our Lord, unto God the Father. Moses' tabernacle represented a number of spiritual things with that holy of holies being closed off. From even the priest couldn't go into it except the high priest, and that only once a year being closed off. All of that was a picture. The book of Hebrews is to tell us about that picture because it's all the everlasting covenant just being doled out a little bit at a time so that the Jews were given all these commandments from Mo that Moses got on Mount Sinai that they couldn't keep, and they couldn't go into God's presence because of that veil that was there under penalty of death but we have the New Testament because we have, a greater, we have a greater revelation to us, even though there were men back then that could talk face to face with God like Moses. But now all of you can through the everlasting covenant. How can the beneficiaries know with assurance they will be saved by God's covenant? Because they believe and obey unlike others. That's how. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's how. Beneficiaries are full of good works. That's how. They make their calling and election sure. That's how. That means making the everlasting covenant sure. That's what it, it's all. You can prove that you're a beneficiary of the everlasting covenant. What can or should beneficiaries do for other men that they might be in the covenant? They can't. It's God's choice. You can't do anything for any man if you would think about the little tiny bit that you're able to do for anyone, including your own children. You don't know when they come out of that birth canal and if you haven't been privy to invasions of the uh, womb like we have in modern society, you have no idea what's coming out. You can't, you can't touch their lives. You, you don't give them their intellect. The, uh, the amount of influence that parents have is so small in certain regards, but not in this regard. Just hold on. God has to make the choice, and we trust him. Rebecca had twins in her womb, conceived by one father. God chose one and left another. Is God unfair, or is God cruel because he didn't choose Esau? No, God is unfair because he chose Jacob. Because if God was fair, he wouldn't have chosen either of those twins. But he chose Jacob to be part of the everlasting covenant. And so, what do we do with our children? Come here, my children, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. We teach our children the fear of the Lord, and some of them will follow it, love it, obey it, and stick to it, and others will not. That's, gonna, that's between them and God. We just need to do our reasonable best at teaching them the fear of the Lord. Some will, some won't. It's through all the pages of Scripture. When Jacob was on his deathbed and he looked at his 12 sons, how many good sons did he have? One. 
Joseph gave him a double portion. And on it goes. We can't put anyone in the everlasting covenant, but everyone that's in the everlasting covenant, we can teach them, encourage them, rejoice with them, and provoke them to love and to good works. And so we ought to be considering each other in this church and provoking each other in every way we can to be great children of the covenant. We are covenant people. We're covenant men. We have covenant children. We want to teach our covenant children the gospel of John. So we do anything we can for them. And then it's going to be between them and God if they're a covenant child or not. Can some play the fool for a while and then be saved by that great God of mercy? Yes. Can covenant children commit terrible sins like David did and have them enumerated in Scripture? Yes. Can they commit sins like Noah did? Being drunk? Yes. But the covenant is still sure. And so we teach and we exhort and we encourage and we want to be a covenant church where we understand that our salvation is by covenant and we get together, that we are with covenant people chosen out of this world to be put together in one place and we want to stir each other up to be the best covenant children that we can be. We can't put anyone in the everlasting covenant, but we can certainly love, pray for, and see if we can help everyone that is in it. Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is. Which Israel do you think he's praying for? The part of Israel that wasn't covenant Israel or covenant Israel, that they might be saved. And then he goes on to explain what he meant. I don't want them thinking for one more minute that they are saved by Moses' law. I want them to know that Jesus Christ has satisfied and fulfilled Moses' law and that salvation is entirely in him. And so that's what he prayed for, and that's what we want to pray for, and that's what we want to do with everyone that we can. You have a blueprint in your hands. It's called a Bible. You're going to take it home. I've tried to help you look at it a little different way today, and wherever you go in the Bible... I hope that you'll see it popping up. I hope that you'll read a chapter a little differently. How is this related to the everlasting covenant? Where does this fit in to God's plan for the whole universe and all angels and men, holy and wicked, for his own great glory and to display his wisdom, his manifold wisdom to rational creatures, especially angels. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.